uh, all of you here, and we are also uh, excited about uh, the kids going out for... <laughs> Thanks for the hand signals. <laughs> appreciate that, Julie. My name is Bill. I teach Christian Ed at Dillon Community Church. I love the songs that we sang this morning. They fit right in with Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, which is the, the theme of the message this morning, uh, which is titled, Familiarity Can Breed Contempt. Familiarity itself, just a quick definition of it, um, the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration or worthless or deserving scorn. So how can familiarity bring that about? And that's uh, the topic uh, for this morning. Uh, Life, you remember, is not an action movie. We uh, are so used to uh, movies where there's one car chase after the next or one this or one that, and uh, it loses our attention if uh, it doesn't have those things entering in because we're a generation that is so tuned into the visual uh, at this point that we want to see everything, and we want to see it moving fast, I, for certain. I remember I, just recently I was watching a John Wayne movie, and, and he was riding old Dollar, his old horse, and every scene had him at either a slow, nice, easy lope or a gallop. And I was thinking, how long can you ride a horse at a gallop? It's certainly not through a whole movie, uh, but they do that. And that's their attempt, of course, at producing action. And, of course, the music gets, gets uh, you into it as well. I remember um, if we had uh, exciting events following our lives in an orchestra behind us, you know, we'd hear the theme of Jaws tuning up and getting higher and higher. As, and then we were assured that it was action-oriented and we should pay attention um, as well. I, Poor old John Wayne, you know, all he had was the silver screen and his horse. I liked his horse a lot. But that whole problem of keeping people's attention is really hard these days. As a matter of fact, uh, one Christmas, my wife and I were at a really large church down in Denver. Uh, Several thousand people in attendance, and it was Christmas time. Actually, I think it was Christmas Eve, a Christmas Eve service, and we had several of our family sitting there watching, and, and they started playing, and, and the smoke started coming up, and the laser lights were flashing all over the place like this, and, and the music was, was loud and good. And my oldest son leaned over to my wife and said, nothing says Christmas like a lot of smoke and lasers. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that's the way we're oriented these days, isn't it? There is no doubt that's the case. Familiarity. How do you keep people's attention? How do you keep us from being bored? Are you bored with God? That's probably the most important part of the point of this message is to try to figure out where we're at in this whole scenario. We'll go to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 through 10, in just a, in just a moment or two. Um, I'm thinking about some of the amazing things that happen in our lives, uh, just day-to-day kinds of things. 
Um, I was talking to Jim recently, and I, I mentioned uh, manna in the wilderness. And I, I suspect, you know, when the people were hungry, for the first 10 to 15, maybe 20 days, manna, which simply means what is it, who knows what it was, manna was available, and it was miraculous provision that God gave. And I can't believe that the people were too excited about it after a little while. I, it got to be just old and hard to deal with, and we need variety. We need change. We need some car chases. We need, you know, we need to have something that will attract our attention and make us believe that God is who he is. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, now Uzziah is not a household name. He's one of the kings that it was during Isaiah's time uh, that he was a prophet. Uh, there were four kings during that time, ending with Hezekiah. Um, and Uzziah was a, a CEO kind of guy, and, and he brought Israel uh, to, the, to the point of great production and security, etc. But as that increased, there attention to God began to decrease. And you know this as a, a frequent theme among the Israelite nation. Uh, they had the profound influence of polytheistic societies around worship of all kinds of different gods and all kinds of different things around them, and that pressure crept in on them oftentimes. Uh, with Ahaz, one of the kings, uh, during uh, Isaiah's time of preaching, uh, introduced a foreign God-type worship into the nation of Israel itself. And this kind of threw everybody for a loop. But God says through the prophet, here's what I'm going to do. Isaiah did not have a, a fun job. Isaiah's job was to proclaim what was wrong and what needed to change and what kind of consequences were going to take place if things didn't change as he went along during his ministry. And so this passage uh, kind of uh, introduces that whole idea of familiarity and it just kind of religion taking a backseat and becoming just religion rather than a relationship. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord high and... Uh, exalted, uh, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, this was the kind of train that you might see uh, with a bride, but this was a huge train that filled the temple. And, and it wasn't an unusual thing for kings during that period of time to have some kind of a robe that flowed out and exhibited how important they were, etc. The Lord's train filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another. Now, before we go on to the next part of this verse, uh, think about this for just a moment. Uh, we sang several songs this morning with holy, 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 holy. You know, and we're thinking God is, 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 we're set apart unto God, and he is, he is set apart from us. It would be his choice 
how he wants to reveal himself to us. And he has done it through the prophets, uh, through in- incredible events in history, uh, like the, the Noahic flood or um, even the process of creation. He's introduced all of these things to us in remarkable ways. I was thinking of, of the universe around us and that he holds it in, in, his, in his hand. Uh, but I was thinking just about our Milky Way with 200 billion stars in it like our sun. Just our Milky Way is one galaxy, 200 billion stars like ours. And then how many billions of galaxies? Somewhere between 200 billion and 10 trillion that's guesswork, of course, on Astronomer's part because they can't count that high, first of all. It would take you multiple millions of years just to count up to a trillion, I think. I haven't tried that. I haven't had the need to try that, actually. Um, but it, we see that, you know, just this incredible, uh, the infinite made available for us to begin, begin only to see in the stars and they're all held together. They're upheld by his hand, his power, his authority. The human chromosome inside each one of your hundred trillion cells. Each of you have about a hundred trillion cells in your body. And in each of those cells, there's chromosome, which is uh, the DNA content. You understand about that. And, and within each chromosome, there's 500 billion bits of information within each chromosome, 500 billion bits. To give you an idea of what that is, if it was written out in the English language with each bit representing a letter, it would fill 1 to 4,500 page books with information. So about 4,500 page books in each of our cells. Each cell, each of the hundred trillion cells, has it. Carl Sagan said it like that. I thought he said it very well. He said, wow, that's a pretty big space in a pretty small place. Pretty big place in a pretty small space. It's remarkable when we Think of that kind of miraculous arrangement and organization going on each moment, each day, in each of our cells, in us, and we've become very familiar with it. Our greatest worry is, well, my greatest worry has always been, which side do I part my hair on? But... That, that's changing rapidly, has changed. Those are our greatest worries these days. And we've become fairly complacent to the extent and familiar with who we are and where we live that we begin to place less value on it or no value whatsoever. Question, of course, do we do that with God's Word? Do we do that with him? And that's what we'll be repeating 
uh, as, we, as we go through this. Let's see the, the next slide in this passage of Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. <laughs> At the sound of their voices, the doorposts uh, and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So when he says, my lips, I, they're, they're unclean, he's speaking of, of his whole body is just not pure before the Lord. There's a psalm. Psalm 19, I think it's verse 14, that says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, or strength, and redeemer. And that's Isaiah's prayer. That's his thought. I, I am unclean. I cannot be in the presence of one like this. That is remarkable. And you notice, uh, as, as we uh, go on, there's a, there's a seraphim involved in this. And the seraphim itself is a fiery creature. Um, has a, that's part of that root word of seraph, is that, uh, is fire. Uh, archaeologists have found uh, on cave drawings, etc., throughout, throughout the world, uh, these pictures of an upright snake with multiple wings. Isn't that interesting? And the polytheistic societies and cultures around Israel during that time period worshipped those kinds of creatures. Well, what's remarkable to me is people oftentimes are exposed to truth but either utilize it their way and so it gets kind of perverted but they don't realize that oftentimes what we see in the world around us is an indication of who God is. It's just like you look at a painting on a wall and you check it out for a while and you make some decisions, don't you, about the author, the painter. You decide whether the guy, if, you know, if it's, a, <laughs> if it's really square kind of painting and that kind of, some of that stuff I don't get into very much. Uh, some of it's just... It's just too out there for me. I've always loved landscapes. I can kind of understand landscapes. But when we see those things, we know something about the author. When we see the world around us, if we're awake to it, if it hasn't become too familiar, we begin to learn about the author. My son-in-law and and my youngest daughter were both... uh, patrollers for years, ski patrollers for years, and Hannah actually threw bombs to start avalanches. She got stopped in airports, by the way, because they sniffed explosive on her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they'd, they'd stand at the top of these things, and they'd, they'd throw these bombs down, and they'd try to get far enough back, of course, that they weren't on the part that was going to cave. And there's an art involved in that, and some of the patrollers weren't very good artists, uh, in that sense, and you can make mistakes easily, 
But we think about those, those beautiful days when it's a bluebird day and it's, been, it's snowed and you're up on a cornice somewhere and you just want to kind of huck off the cornice and, and ski and that sort of thing. And, and it really is fun to be able to do those kinds of things and survive. And so you're weighing, eh, what are the chances? What are the odds? What, uh, have, has the patrol been up here? Have they cut the snow? Have they done those kinds of things? Um, Paul and Donna Wardlaw were in uh, Hawaii recently, and he related to me that they were standing up on, uh, beside uh, one of the large volcanoes on the big island. There's another small volcano not too far away, and they were standing on the edge, and they were looking down in, and they were looking 1,800 feet down in to this volcano that had collapsed two years ago or so, that had, had just gone, you know, the lava chambers underneath, etc., and everything got weak, and they, it, it went 1,800 feet, it just collapsed down in. And Paul was reading the sign, and then he went like this, and he kind of stepped back from the edge, and he was thinking, huh, you know, who's to say when this is going to go again? What's going to happen again? Again, familiarity breeds a kind of, in this case, not cautious kind of attitude. And he, as soon as he started thinking about it, he started, he started backing, backing up. Um, and that's very typical of what familiarity does to us uh, and for us as well. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Any of you ever walk on coals? I mean the ones that are still lit. Uh, you certainly haven't held one in your hand, although I, I'd lay odds that almost all of you have burned a finger at some point in your life, probably as a young child, and you learned the lesson, uh, possibly. But uh, there's some of you that are looking at each other, and I realize that if I had you hold up your hands, there'd be burn marks on it now because you haven't learned yet. Uh, and that's, of course, always a possibility. Um, and he had taken a, a, a hot coal, this seraphim had taken a hot coal with tongs, from the altar, and with it, he touched my mouth. Can you hear the sizzle? And he said, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Fire is a very purifying thing, isn't it? This was the symbol that was taking place, is that God was purifying Isaiah so that he could present God's Word, not only verbally, but by his life. And so often we become familiar with the spoken Word that we don't pay much attention to it any longer. I mean, if every time a preacher spoke, he came out with a tong with a hot coal in it and started going around through the audience, you'd be paying attention. You'd be out the door, of course, but nevertheless... Attracting our attention, God does that in such miraculous ways. He did it through man in the wilderness. He did it through uh, Pharaoh uh, as he brought ten plagues onto the Egyptian nation so the Israelis would let go. It goes on and on how God has illustrated that he's the one in charge of the things that we don't even think about any longer, like our cellular structure and the complexity in our human body. You don't even think about it. You just take a fork and put that piece of apple pie in your mouth, you know, and go from there. With it, he touched my mouth. 
He said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's go to the next slide. Then I heard uh, the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And the newly rehabilitated Isaiah raises his hand and he jumps up and down. He says, I will, I will. All of a sudden, he's interested in who God is and what God wants for him. All of a sudden, he can pay attention again. And then the next slide, it goes on with this passage. And the Lord says through the prophet, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing and never perceiving, Make the heart of this people calloused. Now, doesn't that sound a little strange to you? Doesn't it sound a little unfair? God is is going to go and make people not responsive. It just doesn't seem right. It seems like, if anything, He should make make us responsive to Him. Some people have even said, well, maybe He should make us love Him. But that wouldn't be love at all, would it? Because love it has to be, our choice has to be involved in a loving relationship, not only with each other, but with God. And so God is doing something very interesting here, and I don't understand it very well. But here's my idea. Here's my thoughts uh, about what this means. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Have you heard things and not understood it? Of course you have. Think of your math classes. Think of chemistry. Think of, and it goes on. You heard it. As a matter of fact, you came back after a test and said, I never heard this. And the guy said, you weren't listening. But I was sitting there, but I wasn't listening. So we understand that. We know that that can happen. That does happen with us in every area of our life oftentimes. Uh, But never understanding. But that be, be that this change is going to come on you. And then, but never perceiving, and then make the heart of this people calloused. Boy, is that an interesting word, calloused. You've developed calluses, haven't you? Uh, I remember using a screwdriver any number of times this has happened to me, and I, I don't use a screwdriver every day, but then sometimes you're using it for all day, trying to put something together uh, that your wife broke. No, it's just the opposite of that. I'm putting something together that I broke or my kids. Um, but you use that screwdriver and you develop a blister. Ever done that? A sore spot in your hand? How long does it take that blister to become a callus? A while. And it takes continual use of whatever the object is for it to become calloused so that you don't, don't feel the, the, the pain of it any longer. This is the word that's used in this passage, make the heart of this people calloused. Uh, it's, a, it's such an interesting term. Um, in several places of Scripture, not every place, uh, the word is sclerosis. So if we, you know the word for heart in the Latin term, cardio. So you put the two together, you have cardiosclerosis or arteriosclerosis. You know, a stiffening, a stony kind of process that goes on in our arteries so they're not as flexible any longer. Same thing with the heart. 
becomes... This is a metaphor for our mind, emotions, and will becoming calloused to God. And how does that happen? Well, just like the continual assault on our hand causes the callus to form, the continual assault on us by God causes that callousing. But what kind of assault or insult is it that he brings? Well, in the case of the Pharaoh in Egypt, he simply assaulted Pharaoh with the truth, didn't he? Over and over and over, he gave him the truth. This is what's going to take place. This will happen. You can't avoid it. I know you think you're, you're a god. I know you think that you're in charge of your own life. But the reality of it is, God says, I'm in charge. And he keeps giving us the truth over and over and over again. And we either get the calloused heart or we accept it. And we become soft to him and our hearts change from stone to flesh. Isn't that an interesting process? See, that's really, in my mind, the only fair way for God to make us not hearing, not perceiving, and not understanding, is to continually give us the truth as, as we go through life. In Mark chapter 4, uh, the next uh, passage, well, let's finish this one out. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, I think it's the is there a verse or two left there? Uh, yeah, make their ears dull and close their eyes, a continuation of the passage before. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I'm thinking, otherwise, isn't that what you're after, God? Isn't that what you're after? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden? God put... Uh, preventive in there between them and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's reasons God keeps us in the state that we have chosen to be in. He doesn't want us to be without Him, but able to do everything on our own. He wants us to be able to do his work his way. That's a challenge to me because I'm always, I've been willing to do God's work my way for a long time. That doesn't work out well, by the way. But then we see this passage uh, continue in, in Mark chapter 4, and we'll go to that one at this point. Uh, Jesus is talking. He says to them, uh, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? In other words, do you put live fire under your bed? Oh, of course, of course not. Um, instead, don't you put it on a stand in the next passage? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. The things we don't understand about God, He intends to let us know what they are. And he does this. A mystery in Scripture is only a mystery till it's absolutely revealed to us. It starts out as, well, that's hard. How do we understand that? How do we grasp this? How do we put this to work? And over the process of our investing our time with him, placing our faith in the 
in the correct object, Jesus Christ. Not in our own strength, our own ability, but placing it in Him, all of a sudden things become more and more clear. And we begin to understand what's going on. It wasn't always easy for me to uh, read every portion of Scripture and say, oh, you know, this sounds just way out there. Um, you know, a worldwide flood, creation versus evolution. I haven't been brought up in the sciences. I was really indoctrinated in evolutionary theory and those kinds of things. It's very difficult for me to read God's Word and be able to understand it. But as I developed a, developed a willingness to understand bits, pieces, portions of it, it began to overflow and became so incredibly convincing that I could do nothing other than accept it. Accept God's Word as reality. Many of my, my classmates... Uh, when, when I was in, in school, um, were not believers. As a matter of fact, I, out of 85 guys and girls, uh, there were only three that were believers. And I was one of them. But, boy, was I hard-pressed on every side to buy into what they were saying. How many of those guys are believers today? All of them but one. Why? Because they continued to look. God continued in His grace, in His grace, to expose them to the truth. Isn't that interesting that He would do that? That He won't give up on us? You say, well, He didn't believe it right away, so out. He doesn't do that. He continues the assault of truth and brings us into a closer relationship with Him. None of us understand Him completely. <laughs> None of us understand God's Word completely. There, there are always questions. There's always newness to move into, new things to see and, and be involved in. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to bring us towards Him, and He does it on a slow basis. C.S. Lewis called it, said it like this, I was drugged kicking and screaming into the kingdom. But he was drugged into the kingdom. That's you and me. And he, he drags us past our own willful desire to be in charge. When you see ourselves next to him, you begin to recognize arrogance in me and in ourselves. And we think, oh man, it really is present, isn't it? It really is there um, as well. This, this passage in, in uh, Mark chapter 4 talks about spiritual perception. Um, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, consider carefully uh, what you hear, he continued. Uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, and even more. It's in that second part of Mark chapter 4. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. 
In other words, if we refuse to understand, if we refuse to comprehend, if we refuse to listen, listen carefully, then even what we have will be calloused over. And we'll be those with uh, a, a hard heart uh, as, as we go along. Well, how, how does this happen? Uh, we've been speaking about on the, uh, basically about uh, horizontal, our relationship with, with other people around us, our relationship with situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. But God is interested in the vertical relationship as well. As a matter of fact, we're not going to love each other until we love him as he has loved us and equips us to get past ourselves and our selfishness so that we can begin to reach out and, and serve other people. Uh, you've remembered from time to time when you've heard a message from a pulpit uh, and you may have either said this out loud to somebody uh, or you were thinking it, you know, um, he no longer impresses me. Or I've heard that many times before. Indeed, we have. And it's not that we're to be impressed so much with the uh, individual that's speaking, but with the Word of God that they're bringing. And getting past that for ourselves is a difficult process, but it's something we have to kind of work at. But more than that, it's something we have to pray about and ask God to put his desires in our heart and help us to think, to know that his desires are more important than my desires. And they're the ones that should be enacted um, in our lives. I have a little uh, quote that I'd like to read to you. It's by Paul David Tripp, and it's on this subject. Um, he writes New Morning Mercies. It's a devotional that I found to be very helpful. This is a, a little paragraph off of one page um, in his book. Now, here's the, uh, the vertical connection. Every human being was designed by God to have his hopes, dreams, choices, words, actions, desires, and motivations shaped by a jaw-dropping, heart-controlling, life-shaping awe of God. The stunning reality of God's existence and his grandeur and glory were meant to be at the center of human consciousness. We were all meant to live with God awareness and because of that awareness to live in a Godward way. Awe of God was designed to be the principal motivation for everything we would ever do. We use that word awe in a lot of different ways, don't we? My kids used it differently than I ever used it. I remember jumping up and down one, one time thinking, this is going to be the coolest vacation ever. And I said, kids, gather around. Listen to what we're going to do. We're going to see the six-legged cow. We're going to see a ball of twine that if it's unwound, goes all the way from Topeka, Kansas to Denver. We're going to see the giant statue of Paul Bunyan. We're going, we're going to see the stuffed uh, polar bear that's standing on his, on his hind legs comes right up to the basketball net. 
10 feet, we're going to see all these things. And I remember my oldest son saying, awesome, Dad. (laughs) That's one way to use that word awesome. That's one way to use that word awe. And that's not what is written about here. Paul David Tripp, I think, has it right when he says, awe of God was designed to be the principal motivation for everything we would ever do. But something happens to us as we are drawn into a close relationship with God and are blessed to live close to His secret things. Familiarity causes us to lose our awe of God. What once stunned us doesn't anymore. What produced worship in our hearts doesn't anymore. What caused us to act with hope and courage doesn't anymore. What caused us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness doesn't anymore. I'm afraid that many of us have lost our awe of God and we don't even know it. Is there evidence in your life that you are awe deficient? Cry out for eyes to see once again, for a heart ripped by awe once again. And be thankful for the grace that assures you that you will be heard and answered. In Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Isn't that interesting? Remember how in Nazareth, uh, Jesus came back as an adult and they were going to throw him over a cliff. They thought he was bragging. They thought what he said wasn't, wasn't true. They were familiar with him. He had grown up there. and became an object of their contempt. How does that happen in our lives? Can that happen in our lives? Where Jesus literally is the light of the world. What can we do? Well, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, this isn't on your slides. Let me read this to you. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers (laughs) glorify God by living their lives to the fullest, exhibiting a quiet testimony by living as Christ would. That's from Matthew chapter 5. Living our lives to the fullest, a quiet testimony by living as Christ would. The Apostle Paul, of course, staved off boredom with hard work um, in order to help the weak and supply the needs of the ministry. He didn't preach all the time, in other words. In Athens, when Paul had some downtime while waiting, he did preach to whoever would listen. There's lots of things to do. Do you remember uh, saying to your mom, and this was a big mistake on my part, Mom, I'm bored. You guys remember ever saying that? And then, uh, you, depending on the mood your mom was in, it was, I'll give you something to be bored about, pal. <laughs> or, or she'd give you a list of ten things that you didn't think of, but you didn't want to do any one of those things. Why? Because of the rebel that you are, probably. I, I remember going to church growing up. I, I went to Sunday school then to the morning worship service, afternoon to youth group, then to the evening worship service. Then on on Wednesdays, 
I, I went to some youth-oriented uh, outreach program. All those were actually pretty fun things, but I, my mom said to me one day, well, they're having a bowling deal for the kids your age, and I think you should go. And I said, Mom, I'm not going to that. I said, why not? I said, I, I, I won't have any fun. It's just pointless. You know, you can't make me go. Well, I went. And I, to my great consternation, I had a great time. And I didn't want to tell my mom that I had a good time doing this really fun thing. And life changed for me after that in relationship to church-oriented things, too. As it says in Hebrews, don't forget the assembling of yourselves together. There's purpose in that because we learn what Jesus Christ is really like by being around people that love Jesus Christ. And we move past the contempt stage of not valuing the change that Jesus Christ brings in our lives. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything becomes new. That's what he's after in each of our lives. Prayer will bring you into that close relationship. God's word will bring you into that close relationship. But always, and maybe only, if you ask God to open your eyes, open your ears, so that you can see and hear who he is. Let me close with prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about your word. (laughs) Man, Isaiah was not, I don't think he was in an enviable position. This was a tough place to be, yet he was so faithful to you. Ended up being martyred for you because of what he said. But more than that, how he lived what he said. Help us to take that as an example for us as well. As we approach communion, Lord, and we are to remember um, what you've done for us, your body broken for us, the blood that has been shed for us. We don't want this to become a familiar event, Lord. We want it to be a time when we're reflective on you and what you have done for us. Well, thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.